welcome to another episode of Are You Fucking Shitting Me? I'm Rachel. And I'm April. Hey, April. How are you doing this week? Great. It's a little hot here, but... Uh, <laughs> I've been hot. <laughs> Besides that, uh, you know, I mean, it is summer after all. It's summer. I just got a car with no AC. Ooh. Yeah, so it's like 75% sauna. Oh, well, you know, it's yeah. good for your skin. Yeah, I'm going to be glowing. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just jump into it, I guess. I'm going to talk about our expert this week. Uh, he's pretty awesome. Who'd you find? His name is Dr. Thomas Roberts, and I was really lucky to get to speak with him. Dr. Roberts promotes the legal adaptation of psychedelics for multidisciplinary cultural uses. So, What does that mean? Primarily academic and spiritual implications and how they could be used in our society for things that they haven't been used before oh so like for like research and um spiritual like ceremonies similar sort of like modern ceremonies yeah we're gonna get into kind of the future of psychedelics as he sees it oh wow cool so you know as we know they've been used psychedelics spiritually for thousands of years yeah and currently the research going into it for ptsd and depression and addiction treatment but he has some other ideas of what we can do with it does he think we can use psychedelics as jetpacks yes absolutely we will be flying He's a founding member of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which is MAPS, basically. Oh, okay. He's a co-founder of the Council on Spiritual Practices and the International Transpersonal Association. And, what does that mean? Uh, we'll put a link to it. Transpersonal therapy is something that we're going to talk about and that he tells us about, okay, which cool. is cool. And then he's written some really great stuff about where psychedelics are going or what he'd like to see in the future. And basically, he's a wizard when it comes to the subject. (laughs) (laughs) A psychedelic wizard. Cool. So before we get into the future of psychedelics, I actually wanted to learn about transpersonal therapy and the man who coined the word Stanislav Grof. Let's listen to that right now. Yes, well, he's the world's leading researcher on the use of psychedelics in the psychoanalytic framework. He really carried the torch when the whole jungle was dark with psychedelics and published Realms of the Human Unconscious in 1975 and then a whole bunch of books since then. He originally did his work at Charles University in Prague and then came uh, to America in, in, I think it was uh, Prague Spring 67, I'm not sure of the year. And since then, has written quite a bit on the use of psychedelics and psychotherapy. For a while, he was head of the program at Cantonville State Hospital outside of Baltimore, Maryland, and did a lot of the work there, working with psychedelic sessions of people who basically ran the gamut of problems, which he writes about in Realms and his other books. His work sort of kept the field going. For example, Bill Richards worked with him there, and Bill is now part of the Johns Hopkins work. He basically uses psychedelics um, somewhat differently from the current psychotherapeutic protocol. He would use them in a largely Freudian psychodynamic framework to help his clients bring materials up out of consciousness and then work with them in non-psychedelic sessions until those issues were resolved. And then if they were blocked on more information, then use psychedelics to bring the information up to consciousness again. So it's a very psychodynamic model. 
model. Uh, and there isn't much of that research going on right now. It's more in the um, what they're doing at NYU and at Hopkins is to provide, with a lot of preparation, to provide a lot of um, intense mystical peak experiences. Coming out of a, a Freudian psychodynamic background, you tend to look at the mind in terms of depth. And the shallowest of that is sights and sounds and so forth, and calls that abstract and aesthetic level. And then immediately below that is the experiences the person's had from birth until possession, and that's the psychodynamic Freudian personal history level. And this is where most psychotherapy addresses. It basically looks at things that have happened from from birth until now, and of course, usually a traumatic event. And much against his thought at the time, his patients kept on saying that they were experiencing another level of their mind, which didn't fit into the biographical level. And he resisted that a lot because in Freudians, there's nothing sort of below biographical level. But this then turned into what Graf called the perinatal level. That is, events surrounding birth, including fetal existence, and the birth process itself. And the word is perinatal, not prenatal. That is, it has to do with birth, not just the fetal stage. And then after that, again, overcoming his own resistance, it's what he called the transpersonal level. That is, experiences that his clients were reporting didn't seem to come from either their postnatal life or their prenatal life. And they sort of reached beyond their personal experience. And that's why he coined the word transpersonal meaning beyond the personal experience. This is most like Jung's collective unconscious. All right, so that's four-level map of the human mind. Does that make sense to you, April? Do you have any questions? Can you go over it a little more? I couldn't quite understand exactly what he was talking about. It's a huge concept. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it. Yeah. I mean, it starts off with your basic level. There are four levels. The shallowest level or the top of, like, say, a pyramid. So we're just, like, okay. scra- scratching okay. the surface. That's the abstract and aesthetic level. So that's basically your sights and sounds. Just what we experience Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So the second level on that pyramid is the autobiographical level. For that, it's basically all the stuff, all of your experiences that you've had up until your therapy session. So that's your... Okay. Okay. That's your life, your story. Up until that point. Yeah. Okay. Um, And then there's the perinatal level, which is... Yeah, this is the part that was confusing to me. And it was confusing for Groff, too, because those first two are kind of standard Freudian stuff. Right. And this is where people were saying, yeah, but none of this stuff is explaining these other things I've experienced, these other knowledge. I've had and I had an acupuncturist who would do stuff like this she did testing on you and she would say oh this is something that happened to you in your womb so the perinatal it's not just pre-birth it's all of the stuff that happens in your fetal stages but also your birthing experience that's super interesting because my mom is a doula and so part of what she does is she tries to make the birth experience as positive as possible and part of it is for the mother but also part of it is for the baby and she has talked a little bit about 
trauma that happens in birth for both the mother and for the baby and that it can have lasting effects or they learn about that anyway so yeah it's really interesting that's really interesting Um, it's like getting up on the wrong side of the bed but for life yeah exactly (laughs) so this is this is good to have this explainer because when he was talking about it i actually was thinking that he was talking about like rebirth so when you're taking a psychedelic and you have a rebirth experience which would make sense that it would have so much impact on your life because it is the beginning of your life yeah exactly and my acupuncturist who did all of these well she's a chiropractor who did acupressure excuse me my chiropractor who did acupressure and cranial sacral and all these other treatments on me Mm -hmm. would talk about that as well it was very trippy but it was it usually made me feel better when we discussed that yeah Um, it's really interesting uh so my mom um deals with this issue with some of her clients and it's called vanishing twin syndrome. And so what happens is uh, a woman will get pregnant and she'll first be pregnant with twins, but then one of them will die, which I guess this is pretty common actually, especially with IVF, but it's pretty common in women where they'll become pregnant with two babies and then one will, will die pretty soon after she becomes pregnant. And the person who is then born oftentimes will feel like something is missing in their life. And so it's called vanishing twin syndrome. It's really interesting. You're freaking me out because that's the, one of the things that my chiropractor told me I had. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> and it, I always did because I'm adopted as we've talked about. I don't know if we've done on this, but I always as a little kid was like thinking I've got a twin out there somewhere. Wow, that's amazing. I always felt like maybe I feel like I'm something's missing because I'm adopted and it's just different. Yeah. But it, I, because there is yeah. that too. But there was the major thing was I always thought I had a twin. So weird. Yeah. <laughs> so, so okay, so that's, so that's the, the perinatal level. level. Yeah. Okay. And then the fourth level is your deepest level. And that's the transpersonal level, like Jung's collective unconscious. Okay, so that I totally understand that. <laughs> okay, so those are the levels. And then okay. what we find out is they pop up in art, religion, myth, over and over and over again. And one of the papers Dr. Roberts sent me actually had Pink Floyd's The Wall, the movie The Wall. Mm-hmm. And okay. he says that those levels are all over that movie. Let's listen to Dr. Roberts share his analysis with us on The Wall. When I saw it, I thought, wow, look at that. They really described that just beautifully. What I particularly want to alert people to is that uh, the movie Pink Floyd the Ball doesn't see the big Freudian levels exactly in order. And during psychotherapy, they don't appear in order. Groff's organizes them in order to make sense out of them in these four major levels. But in psychotherapy, you know, one thought will lead to another one and another level, and the person sort of ricochets back and forth. And we see that in the movie. The musician going by the name of Pink starts off in sort of reality in the hotel room okay and that's the abstract and aesthetic level and then as he does more drugs he ricochets between his personal history level and these show up in what seem to be like 16 millimeter movies of his own very traumatic and stressful events in his childhood then below that we get into those same emotions and memories but experienced on the perinatal level and this is where some of that very dramatic cartooning comes in and then toward the end of the movie 
I suppose it's the last 10 or 15 minutes or so we get down to a transpersonal level where his experience is all sort of symbolic, emotional, transpersonal, perinatal mixed together. And in the very end, he manages to like break through the wall, the, the wall of his resistance and separateness from society. And so we see him bouncing around. And during that, um, sometimes he'll be back in the hotel room. Sometimes he'll be going out to play in a concert. These levels will sort of flip back and forth between them. And this is in psychotherapy. That's the way the client experiences it. Can you remind me what the wall was about? Yeah, I mean, it's trippy. <laughs> yeah, I remember that part movie. of it. Um, but and basically, lots of cool yeah. animation, and of course the great soundtrack. You've pretty I mean, much got it. You've got Pink, the main, the protagonist, and he's sitting in a hotel room, and then we have flashbacks of his childhood, and there's a lot of isolation. Maybe we should have an outdoor the wall viewing, viewing party. We should. You know, I heard that Roger Waters recently played in Sacramento mm-hmm. and uh, started his concert with some hip hop dancers who were in like orange jumpsuits, and they were dancing, and at the very end ripped him off to reveal shirts that said resist and then he um said some super anti-trump stuff at the concert and i guess a bunch of people got up and left he uh his very first one was in kansas city and he had a a big light display behind him that just said fuck trump like hundreds (laughs) of feet (laughs) long Um, and people were upset but then again if you're upset and you're surprised, you really haven't been listening yeah, to anything, Pink Roger. Floyd Rogers. people. I mean, yeah. he's been breaking down walls from the get go. Yeah. I mean, come on, it's Pink Floyd. Yeah. Anyways, we digress. As I said before, I don't know if the wall intended to explore the transpersonal levels, but we do know that Joseph Campbell was very impressed with them. Wait, can I just ask you a quick question? Yeah. He was very impressed with the levels or with Pink Floyd and the wall? I don't know his view on the wall, but I do know that he was <laughs> he was really impressed with Stanislav's levels. Okay, great. Thank you for clearing that up. Yeah, he uh, read an early edition, like it's before it was published, and was like, oh, wow. I'm just paraphrasing, but... <laughs> in la- oh, oh, wow. Um, <laughs> In light of what he had just read by Stanislav Grof, he decided to evaluate his last few, like the last few pages of his novel would be looking at myth through the lens of LSD. Looking at the worlds of myths and symbols and Grof and psychotherapy have come up with the same overall view of the human mind. And these people from very different fields corroborating on the same finding. Campbell was particularly good. I first heard him talk at a conference in Bifrost, Iceland in 1972. But I had never known that an academic lecture could be that good until I saw Joseph Campbell. He's my hero for just knowing how to lecture, too. And he went up the Tibetan Buddhist chakras and down the Hindu chakras and would also sort of find out where these would fit into various gross levels. So basically, separate from each other, they came on to the same conclusion. I think that what we're facing now is a time of a new kind of hero, the consciousness hero. 
material. The person that, that explores and, and describes his or her own different states of consciousness. And if you look at the people in the psychedelic movement that the people look up to and say, I admire his work or I'd like to be like that, they're often people who have explored consciousness. So I think what we're doing now is we're developing a 21st century view of the Campbell's hero who was a consciousness or mind explorer. Okay, so there's a brief historical overview of transpersonal therapy, how it's represented in art and myth, and that's basically our foundation. But what I wanted to know is where are we now and where are we headed? Let's start with a little vocabulary to get us up to date with the language of psychedelics as we move forward into the future. Houston Smith gave a very strong talk about why hallucinogen was the wrong word because it's not a matter of the mind wandering, but it's a way of going into and exploring the mind. I see psychedelic as the broad category, and then within that are entheogenic uses. Entheogen is developing a, a spiritual experience. It was coined in the 1960s and 70s when psychedelics had such a bad connotation to them. And now I think that most of that connotation has gone away. And I think entheogen is exactly right when you're talking about the spiritual and religious use of psychedelics. And then there are also what I call ideogen uses. And that's the observation that psychedelics generate ideas. And they might be ideas that are useful when a client has an insight into his or her life. Or they might be useful in the sense of um, getting artists and musicians to do new sorts of art, also to ask questions about whatever topic a person happens to be studying. Empathogen, that Dave Nichols suggested, is a nice word for MDMA. I don't know if it'll catch on, but it really does catch the feeling. The vocabulary is developing, and we should expect people saying, well, we should use this word, or this word is best used in this situation. The important thing for me about this is this is a way of exploring different mind-body states. I prefer not to use the word consciousness because it's ambiguous, so I like to call them mind-body states. So when you use mind-body state, what do you mean by that? I'm using it as a synonym of what Charles Tart called different states of consciousness. And I mean the overall functioning of the mind and brain. And I shouldn't say just brain, but actually the whole biological system creating an overall pattern of functioning at any one time. For instance, we're probably both now in our ordinary default awake mind-body state. And tonight we'll be asleep and dreaming and so forth. And with psychedelics and hypnosis, then we can create these other overall patterns of mind-body functioning. And rather than put that hyphen in the middle of mind-body, sort of connecting two different things, I like to remove it and consider mind-body as one overall pattern. And what we're in the process of doing is building and developing different mind-body states, not just the ones 
ones that we know about of actually creating ones that have not been experienced before. Just as in chemistry, they've developed synthetic molecules, we can develop synthetic mind-body states. And who knows what they're going to be good for. My guess is that most of them won't be good for much, but a few of them will be extremely valuable. That's the exploration of the future that I see. Not just with psychedelics, but hypnosis, transcranial brain stimulation, sensory overload, sensory deprivation, all those various mind-body techniques. And we need to see psychedelics as one of this much larger group so that right now, those fields, let's say, like yoga and meditation and psychedelics are sort of seen as these like these separate little fringe groups in psychology. And what I would like to see them is always asking the same question so that they share this whole theoretical general view of the human mind and desire to explore it rather than being these separate little boxes themselves. What happens when we combine them in different recipes? The main thing is to get the idea out there and get people to realize that it's possible to combine these in various ways. The more we know about the brain and mind together, the more we'll be able to select combinations that will work well. And probably start off with rather simple, low-power doses, let's say, and see you know, what people are familiar with and what people are comfortable with. And there'll be some people who this will be exactly the wrong thing to do, and some people who will probably love it. We, we can't expect anything to be right for everybody at all. And a lot of that will be just sort of figuring out in a pre-diagnosis saying, well, this person might be good for, let's say, a mild psychedelic plus uh, sensory overload or mild hypnosis plus XYZ meditation. So then you talk about mind app. Can you give us a few examples of what a mind app is? Yes. If there's one idea that people need to grasp, it's a mind app. Okay, and the idea is very simple. It's an analogy. And just as people can write a large number of apps for our electronic devices and install them, and then the electronic devices can do new things, we can write, we are writing mind apps. Psychedelics is one family of mind apps. When we install them, then we can do different things with our mind-body states. So once you see that mind app is a analogous to electronic apps, then the questions are, how many are there? How can we write new ones? What are they good for? What are they not good for? Just as we have with ordinary apps. And then the observation is we're importing them from new places like ayahuasca and ibogaine. There are unlimited number of other ones. And in addition, there'll be new ones that are being developed. The research that's being done on the nervous system is almost all oriented toward curing various diseases or conditions, and it should be, but that's not the only use of these discoveries. When we discover, let's say, that part of the cell can communicate that we didn't know could communicate previously, when that's not working well, we can use that to overcome a disease. Then we can also learn to influence it as producing different mind-body states. So most of these discoveries about the nervous system are not just useful for psychotherapy, but they're useful in the sense that they might develop into, and some will and some won't, into mind apps. So once you see that idea of mind app, everything grows out of that idea. And then the question becomes, given whatever task I'm working on, what mind app will be most useful for that particular task? So the Silicon Valley microdosing, that would be a mind app, correct? 
correct? Yes, exactly. The purpose of microdosing is to increase one's daily function. And the way this is done currently is to take very, very small doses of psychedelics, 10 to 20 micrograms of LSD on one day, and then take two or even three days off with no dose, and then repeat again on, let's say, the fourth day. And the research on this that Jim Fadim is doing is the best research so far. And because it's currently illegal, um, he has to have people report anonymously to him and he's collecting information. Now, the Beckley Foundation is trying to start a good scientific control study of this in England. If it ever does get funded and get approved, this will be the best approach to it. Every one of these mind apps can be used in different strengths. So they're not only the combination of possible recipes, but the different strengths of each of them that goes into their recipe. The big question is, is it worthwhile developing mind-body states that have never been experienced before? And will we develop new abilities that reside in different mind-body states? For example, when we switch from one mind-body state to another, some abilities become stronger, some become weaker, some disappear altogether, and apparently some new ones occur. Things that we call impossible, what we really mean is those are impossible on an ordinary default awake state of consciousness. But it may be that some of these odd things like parapsychological abilities might exist in other mind-body states. And then we can ask the question of basically everything that's being studied in all the sciences, all the social sciences and the arts, and ask the questions, how does whatever we're interested in vary from mind-body state to mind-body state? So all the fields that we're now studying get re-asked for every one of the different mind-body states. And as we invent new mind-body states, those questions will get re-asked again. So the number of questions that are arising are just absolutely enormous. And there's clearly several generations of work. I would like to see um, professors at uh, colleges and universities offer courses in psychedelics. And there could be basically almost every field. The obvious ones, of course, are the mental health and psychology areas, but they could go into the humanities and the social sciences and so forth, not just as something to study, but as a method of study. Now, we couldn't encourage the method of study until they become legal, and so one of the things that professors and professionals of all kinds have to look at is how can our profession benefit from psychedelics, let's say, in the idea gen sense, what ideas might we develop. And of course, in some cases, there won't be many answers in some places. There'll be a lot. So this is a way of opening up an enormous area of discussion and trying to promote the use of not only psychedelics, but all the other mind apps as ways of enriching practically every field that exists. So that's the direction I hope we'll go in. I don't expect to live long enough to see it, but we can always get the ball rolling. I live long enough to see that. I know. He said generations. Yeah, we probably won't live long enough to see it either. No. I want a mind app. 
<laughs> I think that's a fascinating concept. Super cool. It actually put everything in context for me and helped make it make more sense. When I was thinking about the use of psychedelics for something other than maybe a spiritual ceremonial use or for, you know, therapy or whatever, I, I had a really hard time thinking about how to use it in other ways, you know, besides recreationally. So thinking about it in terms of a mind app that kind of just starts to open this consciousness and doing it maybe through microdosing or whatever. I found that to be really unexpected. It was when he used the word ideogen for me that just kind of opened it up like, okay, we've we've heard hallucinogen, which he says is not an accurate descriptor for psychedelics, right? And when he used empathogen for MDMA, I was like, yeah, that's a perfect word for it. Yeah, that and is. And theogen, we just learned with ibogaine. Right. Ideogen. I was like, oh, that's exactly what it is, especially in this small doses like the Silicon Valley. And yes, I know I said silicone and my boyfriend. It's just something I like to do to, to bug him while we're watching the show that <laughs> <laughs> I think is hilarious. And he does not. He's a lucky man. Uh, <laughs> but anyways, that the Silicon Valley folks are doing that microdosing um, mm-hmm. is really big. There's also a cool like BBC little video. I saw about microdosing in England and people just doing it on their own. It would be great if we could regulate those amounts. You don't get the psychedelic, like the visuals. It's mm-hmm. just kind of opens your mind. I wonder if microdosing may be something that could be on a path to becoming legalized at some point. I mean, I love the idea of a brain hack. Our brains are so agile as kids, right? We just, they're flexible. They learn so much and then we get so stuck as adults. And I right. mean, it seems to me if we have these mind apps, if we have ideogens, maybe that cognitive thinking opens up. We get more creative. We get more flexible. That It'd would be, be amazing. Yeah. I mean, word is that Steve Jobs microdosed. I'd look into it. I'll see if I can find some proof on that. That would make sense. It's in Silicon Valley. Yeah, it would make sense. I mean, Apple, while he was alive, was killing it with new fresh ideas. Right. I mean, you know, they either came from aliens or psychedelics. Or both. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love all of it. I totally want to major in psychedelics. I mean, I kind of did. I was an art major, but... (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking forward to when colleges offer classes in psychedelics. I like that he was saying, not just learning about them, but using them to learn other subjects. Yeah, that's amazing. To open up all the questions we haven't asked about these (laughs) subjects. I might do better at math. (laughs) You might. You you really, really might. Yeah, I think it might open up a whole new way of seeing everything, of interpreting what we're trying to learn. Yeah, I mean, it lends itself to arts and humanities really easily. Yeah, I Um, think so. But it would be cool to see it in the sciences. Well, it would also be really interesting. So say you're taking, maybe you're in in anthropology or archaeology or something, and there's a ceremony that, you know, you've studied. What if you could actually do that ceremony using those psychedelics as part of your class? Yeah. Well, like we talked to Jessica about the kava kava in the John from Cargo Cult. Right, right. And then she did it. Yeah. Says it takes like crap <laughs> <laughs> just like it was rumored to uh well we hope you enjoyed our series on psychedelics we might throw another episode in here or there i really wanted to find someone um to talk about the experience of what it's like being on psychedelics so at some point we might do an episode where we follow someone who is microdosing or taking psychedelic mushrooms or maybe even ibogaine would be great another thing would be if any of you out there are 
physicians who have been using psychedelics in your treatment, we'd love to speak with you. Yeah, absolutely. Please let us know. And let us know any ideas. We actually got a couple really interesting, unusual ideas recently. We're going to explore those and see what we find out. Maybe they'll become an episode. Send us an email through our website at rufsmpodcast.com. And as always, thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate all of you and appreciate you taking the time to review us on iTunes. That really helps us a lot. We've gotten like double the listeners this month than we had last month. Thanks, guys. Thanks for spreading the word. You're rad. Yes, absolutely. So we will uh, we'll see you next week. And until then, this is April. And this is Rachel. Bye. Thank you.